Okay, this morning let's again, once again, take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and we're going to be looking this morning at verse 66 to 72. Mark chapter 14, verse 66 to 72. As you find your place, let's bow together this morning in a word of prayer. Lord, this morning as we put our eyes upon your word, pray, Lord, that we would learn today that those who are disciples of Jesus Christ need to grow in their understanding of your plan and your person. And I pray, Lord, in doing that, we know you must break us down before you build us up. You must drive out all the wrong thinking and put in biblical thinking so we have a correct view of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, not only will you do it with us, but you've done it right from the beginning with your own apostles. So I pray, Lord, that we would learn well the lesson this morning that we see here. And I pray, Lord, that we would give ourselves over to you to be transformed as you see fit, that anything we need in our life, you would place there. And I pray, Lord, we would respond to it in a way that you can develop us into the disciples of Jesus Christ that are effective and influential in this world that we live. And I pray that today your name would be exalted because of it. And I ask this this morning in Christ's name, amen. So chapter, chapter 14 of Mark, as we come to the end of this chapter, before we get into uh, chapter 15, which we'll be talking about the uh, other trials that Jesus had before Pilate, and then finally the crucifixion, and then the resurrection, And today, we have already witnessed the deep agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed, not what I will, but what you will. We have also witnessed this hell-bent crowd comprised of soldiers on loan from the Romans, the temple police, and also a bunch of underlings and rabble-rousers who just wanted to make trouble and arrest Jesus uh, and bring him before the courts. In addition, we saw Jesus actually arrested out of, in an out-of-the-way place under the cover of darkness while most of the multitude in Jerusalem that were there for the Passover were asleep. All these things were going on, and Jesus then was led away under guard so that he can be tried by the Jewish leadership. We saw that last week. And remember that his, uh, there's three st- stages in the trial of Jesus before the Jews. Uh, Mark picks it up at the second stage, and that second stage is there would be a hasty, informal trial before Caiaphas uh, and the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas being the high priest of that day, and Jesus, of course, would be condemned, mocked, and beaten. So we saw last time the criminal trial of Jesus. They were having a hard time finding witnesses to collaborate with each other, so they can get some credible uh, substance to bring against Jesus. They got 
They didn't get any actually at all. Uh, in verse number 40 of Mark chapter, excuse me, verse number 60 of Mark chapter uh, 14, Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, kind of took a scare tactic. Uh, and in verse 60, we see that the high priest stood up, came forward, questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it, is it these men are testifying against you? In other words, these two witnesses had some incriminating evidence, uh, incriminating testimony against him. And what was the testimony in verse number 57 and 58 that, of course, they heard that Jesus would destroy the temple made with hands and in three days will build another made without hands. And, of course, the destruction of a worship place was a criminal offense. And, of course, but they still didn't have the witnesses that were corroborating their uh, testimony. And so they had to really, he had to use what he had. And so he says to Jesus, do you have an answer to the charges of these witnesses? And in verse number 61 of Mark chapter 14, Jesus kept silent and did not answer. And of course, he did that to fulfill the scripture from Isaiah 53. And then, of course, Caiaphas was determined to get to the real focus of the matter, and that was the focus was this, that Jesus had claimed to be the promised son of God. And so did those uh, disciples understand him as being that? So the high priest violates protocol and asks a direct incriminating question, and that question was in verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? See, that, is, that was the question. Then, of course, did they think they were going to get an answer like they got from Jesus? Probably not. But the divine clock was running out, and it was time for a reliable witness to step forward. That reliable witness will be Jesus himself. And he breaks the silence in verse number 62, and that means that the messianic secret is over. Jesus bears witness to his own identity openly, directly, clearly, and the whole religious ruling body of Israel heard Jesus' answer. He gives them way more than they could have ever asked for. And notice in verse 62, Jesus said, I am... And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So as soon as Jesus made that pronouncement, the situation turned from bad to worse. It went uh, to really a shameful display of dishonor among the people that were there. And so Jesus is now openly condemned, of course unofficially, but openly The high priest received Jesus' statement with, of course, blind eyes, deaf ears, and a dead heart, which is, of course, evident by his theatrical response in verse 63. He tears his clothes. Uh, The high priest says, with what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. And so, of course, he is saying, we don't need any more, more witnesses. He's kind of condemned himself. Caiaphas has the gotcha moment, I gotcha for blasphemy, and of course the penalty for blasphemy was death, of course the 
Sanhedrin had no authority to put people to death, so they had to further get into the Roman government so the Roman government can make that call. And uh, so as far as Caiaphas was concerned, the case is settled. Uh, He bypasses legal procedure, and he moves to influence the whole council to condemn Jesus. Look at verse 64. And you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem? It seemed to you, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So no waiting for a second session like they were supposed to. No waiting for another day to pass. Just in case maybe their judgment was wrong, they could have changed it. No tabulating the votes within the 71 members of the Sanhedrin to find out if he was really could be acquitted or, or was he guilty. None of that. So as soon as the whole council uh, condemned Jesus as deserving of death, a riot breaks out in a, a very real sense, and all the restraints of the human, wicked human heart broke out against Jesus. And, of course, this is just the kind of atmosphere that I mentioned last time that henchmen and underlings and rabble-rousers want. And, of course, in verse 65, what takes place, Jesus is mocked and beaten. Uh, They insult Jesus by spitting on him. They threw a cloth over his head and started slapping him in the face, yelling, prophesy, tell us which one hit you. And then, of course, even the temple police joined in with greater force and began to savagely strike Jesus with their fist. Notice in verse 65, it says, Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and beat him with their fist and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So that continued, actually the language there tells us it continued for a while and they beat Jesus and they humiliated him and of course again, why did they do that? Part of that was not only their wicked heart but it was God's plan from Isaiah that he would be uh, beaten Um, and of course his beard would be plucked out from Isaiah and uh, he would face humiliation and spitting And that is what's going on here. So what this high religious council did not get by Jesus' pronouncement was who Jesus really was. And that's the whole whole purpose of the Gospel of Mark, is to show us who Jesus really is. Now we know, of course, because we understand now that he was saying to them, Today I stand before you, but there is coming a day when you will stand before me in judgment. Someday in the future, the tables will be turned on you, and I powerfully will demonstrate the truth of this claim today when I come in infinite power. Then, then you will really experience me in a way that you never have before. I will not be the man who has come in lowliness and humiliation, but I will come in divine power and glory. And you will one day be conscious of whom you are about to put to death. So it's always a matter of belief or unbelief. Either one gets God's wrath because of their unbelief, 
or one gets God's mercy. Either you will experience the compassion and mercy of a gentle Savior, or you will experience the wrath of a Savior, uh, a God who is a ferocious judge. That's the reality of the situation, not only for them there, but, but for us today. And it will continue on in that way until the Lord comes back. So, saying that, when is it in the Passion Week? Well, it's still very early Friday morning. It's about 3 to 5 a.m. in the morning, right before the sun comes up, after the Sanhedrin uh, had condemned Jesus. And, and as they waited for dawn, when they could really convene, and convene officially and endorse this decision, the members of the Sanhedrin continued to mock and beat and abuse the Lord until the sun rose. And so, meanwhile, while all this is going on with our Lord Jesus, Peter, I said we're going to leave Peter alone last week, right? Well, we're not leaving him alone this week. We're going to fully bring him to light uh, because Peter is so much like many of us. Uh, We are just like him. So Peter is in the courtyard acting in a manner contrary to all that he had learned following Jesus for these three years. He was considered to be pretty much the chief of the disciples. He was the one who usually spoke out before anyone else. He usually the one that answered the question before anyone else did. He was always the one up in front. And both you and I would agree, if after reading Scripture, that Peter was bold He was a strong leader among the disciples. In fact, there's been many examples of his strength so far. Look at verse number 37, uh, where we remember we see Peter's strength can be seen in the recklessness of his faith, where it says, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know that that was Peter who did that. And if he was acting... Uh, pretty much in a fleshly way, uh, still not understanding that there is uh, sp- he needed spiritual strength, not physical strength, to do the work of God. So we see his strength there, though. And also we can see his strength in his the audaciousness of his faith, like in verse number 54. And, and the word audacious is a word that means to be bold, to be fearless, to be daring. It's hard sometimes to be around people who are daring. It seems like they'd like to walk the edge, right? You know, like in if the, right after the edge, it's the cliff, all right? Daring. He was that kind of person. He was a daring person. And we see, like in verse 54, where it says, chapter 14, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So, All the disciples had fled, but Peter and John had managed to follow at a distance, it says in Scripture, because they were afraid. They didn't want to be recognized. Peter actually managed to get into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, you say, how did he do that? Well, it seems that John, the apostle John, His family had known the high priest and the workers that worked under the high priest 
and the doorkeepers that kept the door to the courtyards of the high priest. And so it actually records in John this. You don't need to turn there, but it tells us in John 18, 16. So the other disciple, that the other disciple would be the apostle John, <laughs> excuse me, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So before you can get into the courtyard of the high priest, they had a, a gate and they had a doorkeeper at the gate of course, letting only the people that were allowed to come in, in. So Peter, in his audaciousness, got in there. And um, now, nevertheless, we have to give Peter some credit that he, he actually, apart from all the other disciples, actually went ahead and did this. This was, not, this was like an uh, undercover mission. He wanted to try to go in there being undetected and get out of there just to find out what's going on because he's kind of in confusion now. He, he doesn't real, he's not recognizing yet the death, resurre- the death of Jesus Christ is going to be the means uh, how God would save people. He was thinking the Messiah was going to come in, take over, turn over the Roman government, and the kingdom of God would come, and that would be it. That's not the case. So he's a bit confused. Now, saying all that, the fact remains that even the bravest and the more aggressive of, of the disciples may crumble under pressure. We're going to see that in our passage. See, Peter's problem was that he had been misreading God's method of salvation. By Peter's misreading of God's plan to save He actually was shunning the cross, not even considering it, even though he heard it several times from the Lord. And even, in fact, a couple times, uh, one of the times that Jesus did say to Peter that, listen, I am going to suffer many things. I am going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He still wasn't connecting the dots. And Peter rebuked Jesus in Mark 14, 29, and uh, remark uh, eight and rebuked him, uh, saying saying that no, that's not going to happen to you. Uh, we're going to get through this, kind of like you know that kind of counsel. And of course, Jesus immediately said to them, "Get behind me, Satan! For you you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Isn't that our problem? That we set our mind on our interest, on the world's interest." on um, man's interest, and we don't set our mind on God's interest. That's what his problem was, and that's what our problem is, all right? So Jesus warns Peter, of course, about his sure defection and denial, and Peter's, uh, Peter's failure will be actually a greater failure than the rest of the disciples. And so Jesus says to Peter, Peter, here's the real deal. I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to do. In uh, Mark 14, verse 30, it says, uh, and Jesus said to him, I said to you uh, that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. And, of course, he went up in this uproar. He says, everybody's going to deny you, but I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to be the one that's going to be there not denying you. He still didn't listen to Jesus. I don't know how clear you can get, 
but he wasn't getting it. And so these three denials were not just a momentary slip of weakness. It actually was evidence of extreme spiritual failure. The opposite of this is when I am weak, God is strong. And that is a lesson we must all learn. That it is in our weakness that God displays his glory and his strength. When we think we're strong, when we think we can handle it, when we think we can grow without the provisions that God's given us spiritually to grow, we're already in trouble. And that's where Peter's at right now. And you know what? All of us at one point in our Christian life are right there. You know, we feel strong. We feel healthy. You know, we're going to the gym physically, all right? We're not necessarily going to the gym spiritually. And, um, and we think we can conquer the world. Young people can think they can, they can conquer the world. They have all the answers. And so they try to live their Christian life just on that. Well, what happens is that they're going to fall on their face. It is naive presumption to think that one can follow Christ by a simple assertion of the will. It cannot happen. This presumption, of course, invites a rude awakening because mere confidence in the flesh, in at least fleshly powers, is a receipt for spiritual failure. But we have to learn that lesson. We have already learned in Mark much of the faith of true believers may give way. We may give way under certain pressure, a snare, a temptation. See, the fear of man, as I mentioned last week, is a snare. We are afraid of situations and people. And sometimes we avoid them and we try to manipulate them under, with our own uh, mental abilities and with our own strength and with people we know. And when we do that, we end up getting into trouble. <coughs> Excuse me. We also don't know to what extent our faith may give way. We don't know what life trials may come that we may be weakened to this particular point. So again, the scripture alerts us, be spiritually alert, be on guard all the time, because these things we all must learn. Still, the fact remains Again, that the bravest and the more aggressive of disciples may crumble under certain pressures. Peter didn't think it could be him, but it was, and we're going to see that. By way of analogy, diamond cutters know that diamonds are one of the strongest materials on earth and can bear extreme weight when put under direct pressure. However, Diamond cutters also know that there are fault lines that can be seen under magnification in diamonds. And when that fault line is identified and then struck very precisely with even a small blow, it can chip off a piece of the diamond with very little effort. And I think in a similar way, the slightest inquiries could draw out of us the weaknesses that we have and even the horrible realities that can be found in our own sinful hearts. And only God knows how to do that. So more often, 
more often than we really care to admit, the Lord must break us down before he can build us up and make us spiritually strong, and not strong in ourselves, but strong in the Lord. See, the Lord knows the fault lines in our life, and he'll supply the needed pressure in order to chip away at our weaknesses and our sinfulness and expose them even to ourselves because we have to see them. He doesn't do it to destroy us, never to do that, but to make us strong spiritually, to make us soldiers in this battle that is called the Christian life and that our strength will come from the Lord himself and To learn this lesson is a lesson that is well learned. Let's look at Peter this morning. And let's learn from Peter's experience how the chief diamond cutter, Jesus Christ, makes his disciples. Well, there's three observations I want to make about Peter. The first one is I want to make it in this way. And, you know, it's very unique in Scripture that it was Peter and not the other disciple because Peter was the strongest one of the group. He was the most audacious one of the group and daring one of the group. But I say this first, that the strongest disciple's faith may falter. It may falter. Look what it says in Mark chapter 14, verse number 66 and 67. It says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and says, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. All right, now, see, Peter's faith kind of falters under the slightest interrogation of this young maid who is a gatekeeper, no no official standing with her, no real power that she has, but she did notice him. And it says, of course, in Scripture that he was with the Nazarene. So the doorkeeper looked at Peter, noticed that he was one of Jesus' disciples, and at this point, We don't know what caught her attention, possibly Peter's look, maybe his clothing, maybe his accent, or maybe she recalled him from a past event that she saw him at. We don't know at this particular point. In any case, what he didn't want happened. She brought unwanted attention on Peter from the crowd. Peter was trying to be in there inconspicuous he didn't want anybody to see him so this is the first observation is that his faith now begins to falter by just a little bit of pressure just a little bit well let's see what happens next i would say the second observation would be that the strongest disciple's faith also may collapse when he did not expect it to and so in this section we see that there are three downward steps that is taken by Peter. And the first downward step is, of course, Peter first panicked, all right? And his panic led him in the flesh 
to try to solve that problem. What do you do when you get panicked? All right? You try to gather all your thoughts together to say, how can I get out of this situation? How can I get removed from this event that I'm in? And so notice in verse 67 of Mark chapter 14, it says, And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and says, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. That's verse 67. So Peter, in a fearful dread now, lied his way out of this public exposure and, of course, flatly denied. Notice in verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. So in his panic, in the weakness of his flesh, how do I get out of this? I lie. All right, you ever get out of something? By lying? Matter of fact, I would guarantee every one of us have. Hopefully we don't make that a practice, but all of us have done it. All right? So, again, very much like Peter here. And Peter really was thinking, I need to get out of here. My cover's blown. And so this is what he does. He lies to get out. But this is the first denial. He's denying his Lord pretty much... uh, it's right out there. So, so what he did is that he worked his way into a passageway that led out of the courtyard of the high priest, thinking that I need to get away from the glow of this fire so they can't see my face and just kind of hide in the darknesses of the corner. And that's what he did. And, of course, right at that point of trying to escape the glowing fire, And that warm fire, it says in verse number 68, the second part of the verse, some say, of course, and he went out onto the porch and the rooster crowed. Now, who told him about the rooster crowing? The Lord saying that you're going to deny me three times. Well, this is the first time. And some say that the rooster crowed around 3 a.m., in the morning, and that's the first time that it happened. And just think, just think of it. This strong, outspoken disciple is put on the run by a mere maid, by a servant girl. And Peter, of course, cowers under the fear created by the situation, and the enemy's talons captures Peter's tongue. And he's unable to confess his Lord, but instead... His flesh is energized to verbally deny Jesus uh, in this particular situation. Now, maybe Peter thought at that point he was at least in the darkness now and safe, but notice what happens next. Peter's panic turns to desperation. You know what happens when panic turns to desperation? Does your way of thinking get more clear and more stable of what to do As far as the right thing to do, no. What happens is that once you get desperate, your thoughts are all over the place. You're just scrambling to do anything you can to get out of the situation. Well, just like Peter, what does he do? In verse number 69, notice. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this one, this is one of them. All right, so again, this same maiden, it's the same girl who's really curious now. 
picks Peter out again, even though he's trying to hide away as being a follower of this condemned man called Jesus. And what does Peter do in verse 70? But again, he denied it. See, the verb here is in a what they call an imperfect tense, meaning that Peter proceeded to deny. In, in other words, it indicates that his denying went on for some length of time. How do you convince somebody to get out of a desperate and a panic situation? You do a lot of talking, right? You try to talk your way out of it. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's talking his way out of it. In other words, Peter went off in an extended denial of Jesus Christ. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, when you search the other Gospels, you'll find out there's three reasons why he really went off at this point. The first reason was he was identified by one of the relatives of Malchus. You know who Malchus was, right? He was the guy that he cut the ear off of, right? Now, you notice that if Malchus is a relative and didn't give the whole story about what Jesus did, then who are they going to be after? They're going to be after Peter. In fact, the Gospel of John picks this up, and it says this about him. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So, in other words, this slave girl got the crowd focusing their attention on who? Peter. All right? So all the attention's on Peter, which Peter does not want, and that's what he has. And then, of course, a second thing that takes place is that Peter is identified by his accent. Now, the Gospel of Matthew says to us, a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. In other words, the Greek word is lalia. La, 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 is the way he talks, the way he uses his tongue. You know language and accents give people away all the time, don't they? Matter of fact, if you talk to me, if I talk to you just for a few seconds, I can tell where you're from. I can even tell where you're from in New Jersey. When you hear someone say, y'all, over and over again, you probably are saying they're somewhere from down south, right? Because they say that all the time. Or if someone says to you, I parked a car and have a dad. You probably would say, well, there's somewhere from New England, right? Or somebody who keeps saying, hey, hey, hey. You probably say, well, there's somewhere from Canada. Or maybe somebody will say, good day, mate. You know, they're probably from Australia. Now, so language is, we can, we can pretty much know in our own country and uh, where people are from just by the way they talk. And so, as far as Peter's concerned, they got him nailed. Where's he from? He's not from Jerusalem. Where's he from? He's from Galilee. Well, who else is from Galilee? Jesus is from Galilee. So, see, all these things are piling up on him. And he just is getting nailed to the wall. That there's no way that he can really get out of this. And, of course, we know also 
um, in verse number 70 of Mark chapter 14. All right, Peter is definitely exposed to the crowd, and all the attention of the bystanders are on him. Notice what it says, and after, right in the middle of the passage, and after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. All right, so they connected him by language, by presence, just by Malchus or Malchus's relative that this guy is with him. So in other words, if he's with them and he believes the same thing Jesus believes and he's really genuinely one of his followers, Peter's really in trouble because he's thinking, oh, no, the same thing that's going to it's taking place with Jesus is going to happen to me. I need to get out of here. Now, how do you convince somebody when you're in a situation like that to get out of there? Well, I think Peter's desperation is elevated to a, an aggressively, let's, let's place it, put it this way. He had to disconnect, disconnect himself from Jesus Christ. How do you do that? How do you convince the crowd to back off? How do you do that? Well, he did it by cursing, by swearing. That's how he did it. Yes, this Peter who made several great confessions about Jesus Christ, like recorded in Matthew, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. All right, and and John chapter 6, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's all from Peter. And now he's put in a corner, and now his panic that turned to desperation is now at the frantic stage. That means, you know, when you're looking at a meter, it's in the red stage. And at the red stage, you do anything you can to get out of the situation. And notice what it says in verse 71. It says, and he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. The word curse is actually a word that we're pretty familiar with. Anathematize, it means. Anathema, you know? Actually used in passages like Galatians where it says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. There's that word, same word. Anathema. He's accursed because he doesn't preach the true gospel. And then like in 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be anathema, accursed. So this word here means, in other words, for Peter to be convincing, he had to call down all manner of evil upon himself with high and holy oaths before God as a witness that he indeed did not know this man, Jesus. It's like saying, may God do to me if I am telling a lie. Let the curses fall on me. So he does and says anything to save himself. That's what he does. And so at that particular point, I think, uh, I think Peter is at... Um, this third downward step that he just took away from Christ completely 
outlandishly denying that he even knew Jesus Christ because of the fear of man, because he was just trusting in his own fleshly ability, his mental mental ability, that he, uh, even his boldness to get out of there, he just said, the only way I'm going to convince these people is just to outright curse and swear and get out. And they'll, they'll have to think, okay, if this guy's cursing, swearing, cursing upon himself, then he probably doesn't know him, right? That's what he's coming up with. So what happens at that point? Well, all that was designed for Peter by God himself. For what reason? To break him down. To show him that he cannot trust those things when he finally leads the apostles after Jesus rises from the grave and goes back to heaven and now begins to build the church. Remember, I called the message this morning uh, the crumbling stone. And the reason why I called them that is because the, Peter's name means little stone. And upon this rock, the bedrock, Jesus Christ, he will build the church. God will give to Peter the, the keys of the kingdom, meaning he's going to unlock the kingdom of God to people by preaching the gospel. That's what he's going to do. So unless he learns this lesson, he cannot do that. Right? He must learn the lesson. And you know what? Until we learn this lesson, we cannot live the Christian life that we ought to live unless we learn these particular lessons. It's not done in your own power. It's not done by what you know, by how you're educated, by people you know, by how much money you have. It's not done by any of that. It's done by God's power in your life, by you saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God fills you to do the work of God, and then you depend on God's strength to do everything you have to do in this world and this life. See, that's the only way of the Christian life, because when you live it there, you will maintain your peace that God says, I will give you and no one can take away, and you will maintain the joy deep in your heart, which is the strength of God, which God has given and no one can take away. But you can give it away. You can lay it aside. Right? We need to live our life there because, you know what, God doesn't promise us a rose garden for our Christian life. He says there's going to be trials, there's going to be temptations, people are going to hate you because of me. They are going to come against you because of me, because you bear my image. You think Satan is happy that you have been snatched from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? You think he's happy about that? He thinks he's going to leave you alone? He's not going to tempt you? You think that that's it? You understand from Scripture that you need to be strong, but your strength needs to come from the Lord. So, what happens at this point? What does God do with us when we get to that point? Well, I would say this: the last point would be this: that the strongest disciple's failure of faith may be restored. All right, we all can be restored as real disciples when we do fall on our face, when we do falter, when we do collapse under the pressures of life. We can be restored. And how are we restored? We're all restored the same exact way. And let's look at some of the the steps in being restored, all right? Verse number 72, it says in Mark 14, it says, immediately when all this happened, the rooster crowed a second time, and notice... And Peter remembered, what did he remember? How Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me 
three times. So in Scripture, what did he remember? He remembered the Lord's word. Finally, finally, Peter is remembering what Jesus actually said. And it's benefiting him because he now puts those two things together and now he's beginning to listen to the words of the Lord and the words of the Lord now are reminding him, Peter, I already told you these things are going to happen. You didn't believe it. You thought you were strong enough in yourself and that you could handle it all, but you can't. You need me. So as Jesus was led from the house of the high priest to the dungeon, he glanced over at Peter in the courtyard. Jesus heard Peter's third denial, and the Lord looked upon Peter, who had vigorously protested his superior loyal loyalty to Jesus and gave that away. And Peter fled into the darkness or into the dawn with a broken heart. See, that's the first way that we are restored. We remember the word of God. We remembered what God said about his children, about about what the Lord has has done in behalf of his children and what he will do in in behalf of his children. But the second thing that happens, we found in verse uh, 72, is this. He began to weep. All right. Now here we know that weeping in other in other uh, gospels it says that he wept bitterly and audibly. Of course, me this means that he repented. There was a genuine sign of, of repentance by his weeping. So and of course, repentance is always the proof of a real disciple. A real disciple recognizes, in Peter's case, the grave sin he committed by denying his Lord. And when he, when he said, and he thought he couldn't, but he did. And now, the genuine sorrow that came with a recognition of sin. And when you really know you sinned against the Lord, there's going to be a recognition of that sin and a sorrow that comes with it. I am grieved that I acted that way when I knew better not to. But I learned my lesson that I cannot overcome things uh, in my life without Christ. And I think three things really helped bring about Peter's repentance. And I believe the Lord many times designs these things for us. Maybe he uses people. But I think one of them is, is the rooster crowing, right? This kind of like, uh, actually, it's, it's really, the, uh, it could be the sound of a bugle. Some people have interpreted the rooster crowing as the sound of a bugle, but I don't think that's the interpretation. I think it's the rooster. Right, And so the rooster crowing, crowing, what does it does? It jogs his mind to remember. All right, And of course, then secondly would be Jesus' word is now remembered. He's remembered exactly what the Lord says. And then I think a third thing would be the Savior's look. At the precise moment, the Lord looked at Peter after his third denial. And did he see the look of condemnation? No. He saw on the bloody, spit-upon, black-and-blue face of Jesus Christ a look of compassion, mercy. Not God not giving Peter what he actually deserved, you know? And and matter of fact, every time we give ourselves over as a living sacrifice to God, like in Romans 12, 1, 
Why, what motivates us to do that? The mercy of God. That God didn't give you and I something we all deserve. We deserve hell, but he didn't give it to us. Why? Because of his compassion. Because of his mercy towards us. So Peter remembered, he repented. And then, of course, in Luke chapter 22, it tells us something else about what happened. It says that he returned to follow Jesus with now uh, understanding of his dependence on Christ and less on himself. Listen to what it says in, in Luke chapter 22. It says, Simon, Simon, Jesus speaking, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, meaning you turn back to the Lord, this is what he says, go strengthen your brothers. Now you're strong enough to minister. Now you're strong enough to go do what I want you to do because you're not going in your own strength. You're going in the strength that comes from on high. The strength that comes from the Spirit, that the strength that comes from knowing the Word of God, knowing the will of God. See, that's the strength that God wants us to minister in. But, you know, as we look back and examine Peter's responses, there is actually an identifiable pattern in which the downward steps of a backsliding heart can be actually recognized. If we go back a bit, what did Peter do? Back in the beginning there, he began to, the first thing is he started questioning God's plan and in interpreting it in a way that that doesn't have to be that way. We can do it another way. A second thing he began to do is he began to boast about his understanding of things where, where when he says that even if I, uh, I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He was boasting about his ability not to die Christ, not to deny Christ. And so he was boasting in his own strength. And then also in Mark 14, 37 to 42, he was sleeping when he should have been alert and awake. He was spiritually drowsy. And then what happened after that, we saw today, he began to flesh things out. That thinking that the spiritual battle is fought with worldly weapons like swords and clubs, like words, and my ability to get out of situations if I'm trapped. And then what happens in verse 54, he he begins to follow Jesus from a a distance. I don't want to get too close. And then, of course, that leads to denying Jesus. So these steps all can be found in a, a heart that's getting cold. A heart that, that's moving away from the Lord. You know, we start following Jesus from a distance. You know, maybe that means not coming to church as often as you once did. Not being involved in serving the Lord as you once did. May, it could be maybe you're not even reading your Bible like you once did. And, and so you began to like get, have a distance, a coldness that comes in, right? And then what happens in that case, you, you revert back to all the old fleshly things. Oh, it's... Did God really mean that, that I shouldn't go out and, you know, get plastered and drunk? Did God really mean that? He wants me to have a good time. 
So you don't need that. I'm just going to just one time. You know, that's all it takes. And we begin to just boast that, hey, listen, I've been doing all right. I'm pretty strong. My life's going pretty good. I'm paying my bills. All right, all those things. And you begin to rationalize and think just in a worldly way. And then what happens is that you let down your guard and you kind of fall asleep spiritually. And then you just keep doing things that you know in the flesh. There's no heart for God there. You're just going through the motions. And you begin to even follow farther away from the Lord and away from his people in church, and away from the word of God, and things get distanced. And what you start doing is you start just, you know, you don't have to deny like Peter denied. You can deny by just not saying anything. People at work don't even know you're a believer. People in your little group don't even know you know Christ. Why? Because you never say anything. That's, is, that, is that a witness or is that a denial of Jesus? You know, whoa, if I mention Jesus, I might get fired. I'm not talking about wasting your boss's time. I'm talking about letting them know by your words and your actions that you are a believer and not afraid to say it around the scuttlebutt of the water cooler. I know Christ, and this is what Christ has done for me. Sometimes it only takes a few minutes, right? And then we just don't say anything to our neighbors, to our our family. We have a... Events and we just very nicely deny Christ. All of us are going to fail. The question becomes will you turn to Jesus? Will you confess your sin and call it what it is, sin? And will you let him restore you? Because he's right there to do it. And I know that in the general walk of the Christian life, every one of us are going to be in this place maybe once, maybe twice, and hopefully not more than that. Because if you're there, today may be the day to confess your sin of possibly just not being, living your Christian life openly, of even denying Christ in that way, or maybe following from afar, having a cold heart, or maybe you're here today and you don't you know the truth of scripture you know the way of the gospel but you in your pride just have never asked Christ to save you today may be the day that you do that and lay those things aside and cast yourself upon the lord because if you are a believer he will have nothing but compassion on you he will receive you to himself and he will strengthen you. Why? He's, all, he's breaking us down to build us up, up. For what reason? So we can strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why. And that's what the Lord's doing. And believe me, if Peter had to learn that lesson, don't think you're getting out of it. You and I have to learn it. But when we learn it, let's learn it well. And once we learn it, let's not go back the way of backsliding, but let's constantly have a heart and a warm heart for the Lord so that in our weakness, he may be strong, and then the Lord could work through you and I to minister to others on a regular basis. And all God's people said, or oh me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the just the reality of the word of God. Lord, if this was not here in scripture, how would we know? 
that such a strong, audacious apostle like Peter had to learn these things before he could be effective for you, before he can do what you wanted him to do. And so, Lord, when you teach us these same things, at maybe in a different context, Lord, let us learn well. And, Lord, let us see it as really as sin, Lord, and let us repent of it and put those things aside and learn to cast our care upon you where we know you care for us, that you may guard our heart and mind from worry and allow the peace of God to reign and the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Please do that amongst us. Do what you need to do in our hearts today to bring us to a place where we are not lukewarm, but on fire for you in our hearts. And I pray this in Christ. Amen.